you know, I was a kid in the 70s and the time of Ali and Frasier and then the Rocky movies. And I think it got it embedded in my mind as heroism. But then I quickly discovered a number of things. One, I don't like to hit other human beings. I'm like, I don't, I'm basically a pacifist. I don't want to cause pain. I just wanted it to look heroic. And then the other thing is, you know, I got my butt kicked, especially in my first fight, and that was really bad. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of Tourist Information. My guest this week is author Jonathan Ames, who has a new book out next month, A Man Named Doll, which is fantastic. I don't know why I was kind of nervous going into this one. Uh, Jonathan has a very dial tone voice and uh and yet he's so goddamn funny uh i <laughs> i don't know why i was nervous about this one um but he's written about his own career of getting in fights and and every biography about him includes his record as an amateur boxer and his involvement with boxing and he writes about it in a very distinctive unique way um, that's vulnerable and fascinating and, you know, makes you think uh, about stuff, about him and about the sport and about us who are interested in the sport. And this new book is about a private detective, which I think in my own wish fulfillment is definitely what I would want to do in some alternate universe. Um, and it's set in Los Angeles, so it evokes a lot of my favorite books and movies about, you know, L.A. and noir, Chinatown, Ask the Dusk, Inherent Vice, and on. I mean, there are so many, <laughs> sort of Raymond Chandler, wonderful stuff, The Long Goodbye. Um, but this was a fun conversation, and uh, it is always weird going into these where you're cold calling somebody you've never talked to, and um, and you end up coming away just liking them a whole lot. And and I hope you will too, and I hope you, you read his book, because it's, it's a lot of fun. His publisher sent me an advanced copy, and... It's, uh, I, I don't laugh out loud a lot with books, but I was with this one. So I hope you enjoy my conversation with Jonathan Ames, this week's guest on Tourist Information. Well, I want to get to your book, but before we start, I thought we would just touch upon it being ostensibly a boxing podcast. Um, your two and four record as a, as a boxer, if you could... I, I read your McSweeney's article, reread it, um, but this was, it, it's interesting to me that you have aligned yourself with boxing, even on, on your, your latest book, A Man Named All, it mentions your, your boxing career. Yeah. So I just wondered, like, you, you, you touched upon the, the relative who introduced you to boxing, but why has this been this line throughout your life? in the way that it has it's you've approached it in a way that's unlike any other writer that i know of huh. well yeah it's a good question i mean i wonder you know it's still in my bio i guess because i don't know maybe it's a, a dash of color you know bios are you know I, I don't know i guess one has to admit a form of self-promotion or something like that and and I don't know it was this odd adventure I went on in the late 90s when I got challenged to a fight a boxing match and I'll go back in time um and I suddenly dubbed myself the herring wonder I was living on the Lower East Side this was uh 99 
near Russ and Daughters, the, the smoked fish place. And I had this image of like, you know, the turn of the century, you know, Jewish immigrants were very big in the boxing game. And so somehow I just, I don't know, when this guy challenged me to a fight, which we can get into, I suddenly dubbed myself the Herring Wonder. And it was just so absurd. Like, who's the Herring Wonder? And, and my whole thing was that I'll eat the herring, which is such a powerful fish, you know, for strength, but also that I would have herring breath in the ring, you know, to repel my opponent. Because, like, I don't know, when, you know, herring often comes with a lot of onions. Um, and one neat thing about the herring is many years later, I think it was 2003, as a journalist, I was embedded on a Greenpeace boat moving through the uh, intracoastal waterway of Alaska. And they were, you know, they were, it was all about logging and just beautiful, beautiful country, of course, up there. And it was like rainforest. And one night we were docked on the boat and you could hear the whales like breaching, you know, maybe... 200 yards away at night, you know, feeding. And along the edge of the boat, which had lights on it, I saw like this stream of silver surrounding the boat, like streams of fish. And I was with like a scientist and I said, what are those fish down there? And he said, herring. I'm like, oh my God, herring? And but that's what the, that's what the uh, whales were eating. I'm like, oh my God, the most powerful creature in the world is like surviving on herring. I was right to think that the herring would give me strength and power. Um, but anyway, in terms of the through line in my life, I guess I, early on as a child, I had a fascination with boxing. It, it maybe because of my great aunt, I had this little black and white TV and she got me to watch fights with her. I feel like it was like on a Saturday night on this little black and white TV. And she told me that her you know, father, this guy, Nuham, had loved going to fights, watching fights. And there was something um, heroic about it. And then, you know, I was a kid in the 70s and the time of Ali and Frazier and then the Rocky movies. And I think it got it embedded in my mind as heroism. But then I quickly discovered a number of things. One, I don't like to hit other human beings. I'm like, I don't, I'm basically a pacifist. I don't want to cause pain. I just wanted it to look heroic. And then the other thing is, you know, I got my butt kicked, especially in my first fight. And that was really bad. But you, you mentioned this record two and four, that was from this McSweeney's article. And that was kind of a silly record. It was a, the, the first fight was a childhood fight where I got beaten pretty badly by this uh, strange child in my neighborhood. He I was walking along this pond and he basically jumped me and well, I was pretending to be Spider-Man. I had my sweater pulled over my head. I thought I was Spider-Man and I, I and I'd seen my sister up by the road and I was walking along the pond and suddenly someone pushed me from behind and I was still very much in my mind. I'm Spider-Man and I fell down into the mud and I turned around and I'm like, I'm going to get, I thought it was my sister. I was still in Spider-Man mode. So I start chasing this kid who had pushed me out of the blue. Like he'd snuck through the woods by my house, down by this pond I grew up on, pushed me down. And I'm chasing this kid. And I suddenly realized, oh my God, that's not my sister. But well, I'm still Spider-Man. I got to go through with it. So I must have caught up with him, pushed him. And next thing I know, he's sitting on my chest. He smelled of peanut butter and his fist came down and broke my little nose. I ended up having to get my nostril cauterized or something, like a vessel got broken. I was probably six or seven. I bled all over the sweater. 
when I went running up to my mother, she thought it was mud. And she said, you got mud from, you got mud on your sweater from Israel. I'm like, no, I couldn't get the words out. I've been attacked. You know, I was probably six or seven. The kid was probably nine or 10. And then, uh, so that was the first loss. The second loss was in a bar fight in Paris when I was 20, very into Hemingway. And I was intoxicated, unfortunately, but I was 20. And I don't know, I got into a scuffle with this guy over a young woman I was with. I thought he shouldn't have been, you know, I think he was trying to, you know, take her away from me in some way. And uh, I may have pushed him and he responded by punching me in the mouth, spun me around. I came at him again, punched me in the nose, broke my nose. Then I got my arms around him. I tried to get a few punches in and then he had me and then um, he had me down in some way or, you know, was holding me. And then suddenly his knee was coming right from my face, turned my head, caught it on the side of my head, went flying. And next thing I knew, a couple of guys had grabbed him. He was a great fighter, this guy. So that was 0-2. Um, oh, there must have been another childhood fight I lost where, again, someone sat on my chest and punched me in the nose. 0-3. 1974, fourth grade loss. Oh, yeah, yeah, that, that one. I remember two kids in the woods. Yeah. And then, um, and then, uh, and then, and then I, you know, I, in the mid early nineties, I forgot about this. I started training at Kingsway boxing gym in 1992 on 41st street and eighth Avenue. Um, I was just living in New York, trying to research, trying to find material for my second novel. Uh, but then anyway, this crazy guy, and we can talk about it more at some point, David Leslie, who was known as the impact addict on MTV, because he would do things like jump off buildings dressed as Maria Von Trapp. Uh, he, he had himself shot out of a cannon into watermelons. <clears throat> anyway, I was performing a lot back then and sort of talking about boxing on stage and nutty things I had gotten into. And um, anyway, he challenged me to a boxing match in 99. And then I really trained for that one. We sold like 600 tickets. It was at this uh, Angel Arnsons down the East Village, a converted synagogue. Tons of people came. There was an undercard. It was just a wild arts event. But I trained very seriously for two or three months with a, a real trainer named Harry Kite, <clears throat> who had been uh, the subject of a documentary called On the Ropes in the late 90s. I think it got an Oscar nomination. Anyway, I trained for like three months for this fight, but like two weeks before the fight, I got my nose broken training real bad. Like I, this guy, he was a plumber and I just stepped into a punch and, uh, oh my God, it was like an explosion went off in my face and Harry was like, it's all right, John, it's all right. You know, come go shadow box. And I'm like, go in the mirror. The bleeding must've stopped. And I'm like, Harry, my nose is like under, I think it went from the left to the right, my nose was like under my eye. You know what I mean? It shifted over. Eventually came back to the middle, but he's like, it's all right. I'm like, no. <laughs> anyway, I, I had a friend from college who was a plastic surgeon and, you know, he looked at it and, you know, we didn't want to call off the fight because we had booked the date or ads and, you know, the paper I wrote for at the time, New York Press. And anyway, we went, <clears throat> my, the, my the surgeon i don't know he was nuts he said well if you break it again i'll i can fix it i'm like oh my gosh but there was a lot of fear you know because of fragments in your nose and it was already a mess and uh we tried to get me good headgear that would protect the nose and uh and supposedly 
my friend wasn't really going to go for my head that much, which was, you know, you don't go into a boxing match and the guy's not going to hit you in the head. You know, so sure enough, in the very first round, he pinned my arm and, you know, smacked the side of my head like six times in a row. And then the second round, he caught me like the I had the uh, face mask that kind of went across the front of the nose. Mm-hmm. But there was still a little bit area up top where your eyes could see. And like a left hook or something sliced across the top, rebroke it. Um, so I lost that fight. That's then 0 and 4. Uh, and then, um, and then I won, I won my match against Craig Davidson in 2007. Anyway, I'm, I'm just talking way too much. Um, no, 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 not at all. But there was one. That, what was the, what was the second win though? Um, you, you, you claimed in 1996 that, uh, you were low on money, so you couldn't afford a heterosexual. I don't want to talk about that story. That, that was, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, that, just briefly, I, I just because of madness, I met someone who wanted a box in a hotel room, and I, I don't want to go into details on that. But I, I didn't really win that fight. I, I landed one punch, and the guy banged his hip. It was like someone who really wanted a box, and somehow I met a stranger, and I just thought it would be a weird adventure. Anyway, uh, and he gouged his hip on the dresser and quit. You know, it was hardly a win. So I would, you know, I, I one in four with an asterisk is more like it. But I mean, not not too shabby for a thirty-seven year career with some large, you know, retirements. I mean, several retirements in there. But a, I did win. I did win my fight in two thousand seven <clears throat> against so this writer. Challenged me because he came, Craig Davidson. He was a he was a Canadian guy, a very sweet guy, and uh, he came out with this book called The Fighter, and he and he fought a poet up in Canada to promote it, and then the book was coming out in the States, and I get this email from a publisher, because I had retired after this severe beating in 99, which was a four-round fight, supposed to be two-minute rounds, but the timekeeper was this funny trainer from Gleason's who, you know, I don't know, was always a little bit out of it. So it was three-minute rounds. It was like a 12-minute public beating I took. I mean, I landed a few good punches. I remember seeing, like, I hit the guy in the nose, and I saw a sheet of blood come out of his nose. Anyway, um, that was in 99. So in 2007, I get this email from a publisher. Hey, uh, basically, would you fight this guy? There's this boxing thing on the river. You mentioned it to me in email. Rumble on the river. You fight in the Hudson River around sunset, a ring right on the Hudson River, night of amateur fights. And I'm like, oh, my God, yes. How can I not fight on the Hudson River? And I'm being challenged by a publishing house. This is too weird. <laughs> Even though I had felt that my memory, I don't know if it was psychosomatic or not, had been impacted by the 99 fight. Plus, breaking your nose twice in two weeks. I mean, after the second break, I mean, I really looked like, well, I looked like Liam Neeson if he'd been beat up. Because, like, I was, like, one huge swollen brow, you know, big black eyes. Um, Anyway, I got that challenge from a publishing house. I thought, you know, I'm going to come out of retirement for this. But then it turned out, as you and I emailed, I was disqualified from fighting on the Hudson because I think I was like 12 years older than the guy and you couldn't be more than 10 years. So anyway, we had the fight in Gleason's and that was a very nerve wracking fight because in training this guy, you know how there's always guys who can spar endlessly, like do so many rounds. They put me in with some guy just to spar 
Oh, and he hit me with a jab right in my jaw. And it shifted my jaw over to, I feel like it was, I think it was to the right, like a typewriter cartridge. And I couldn't get it back in place for like weeks, you know, I just like misaligned. So I was like really worried about going into this fight. Another trainer told me that, you know, you could get a broken jaw since you're already a little bit misaligned or something. So the day of the fight, I go to some great sporting goods place on 18th Street to maybe get a new mouth guard. And then I look at the diagram for the mouth guard and they say, the reason why you wear a mouth guard is because the back of the jaw touches the tip of the brain. I'm like, oh, you know, the tip of my brain could be touched by my jaw. <laughs> oh, no. So I went into that fight in 2007, really worried about the tip of my brain and, um, you know, my jaw and but. Thankfully, that guy, I don't think he landed a single blow on my head. I focused more on defense. And it was a like a three-minute, uh, three-round fight, I think, two-minute rounds, much more manageable. And I basically won because, you know, I had a little bit better form, landed a couple of jabs. and uh, But it was a nice, clean fight, no dirty stuff. Um mm -hmm. And I, and I also had learned a lot, like I'd hold on to them a lot because I'm like, and I would count like, okay, that's taken off 20 seconds. And the, the, you know, the guy, the ref would try to break us up and then yeah, break it up, break it up. And then I, I was holding on. I said, what? Like I hadn't heard him, but I had because I'm like, all right, that's another 20 seconds of my life that I'm not getting hit. And uh, but the whole thing was about stepping through the ropes and and I would get in really good shape for these fights. And but yeah, anyway. Sorry for a long ramble. No, 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 no. It's very interesting because I, I never, I've never read anybody who approached the boxing the way you do because I, on the one hand, like it's very funny and charming, but on the other hand, I mean, like when you're a little kid playing dress up as Spider Man and somebody breaks your nose, I mean, for a lot of people, that could be the the traumatic incident <laughs> that shapes their whole future life, and I was wondering. Are you playing this up for laughs because it because you're that uh, resilient, or did it really kind of was this a really big deal to you the threat of physical violence or or how it impacted you or what it represented in terms of masculinity or something you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, um, yeah. I don't know that that fight when I got beat up was the thing that spurred me on later to box, but I just had another memory when I was a kid. <clears throat> Uh, I was given a set of boxing gloves. I must have shown an interest. So I only had one pair, though. And this other kid would come over, really sweet sweet kid. I don't think he'd mind me mentioning his name, Douglas Fishman, because it's a very much a shared memory. And we were about the same age, and I never was a bully. But if there was one kid I kind of pushed around a little bit, it was Douglas. I was like, I was maybe four or five months older. I don't know, I, but... But we had a lot of fun. We'd play basketball. And anyway, he came over this one time, and I'm like, let's box. And I gave him the right-hand glove because I was a little bit stronger maybe. And I took the left-hand glove, and we were in my little bedroom. It was a really tiny bedroom. And I remember we were under my Nerf basketball hoop, and I was sort of pounding him into the corner. like It was like a corner of a, a boxing ring, pounding him with my left. And then suddenly he sticks out a right hits me in my nose, which was always bleeding because of that fight a few years before. I, I had bloody noses my whole life, like crazy. I had to be cauterized more than once. And then I compounded it by being a little bit of a compulsive nose picker. 
I once like picked my nose when I was 15 and somehow scratched the vein and had to be like rushed to the hospital. I told my mother that I'd banged my nose, but my sister said, I bet he was picking because I would like watch TV and just pick endlessly. Oh, it's horrible. I'm sorry if I'm grossing out anybody who hears this. Anyway, so this one time I was maybe eight years old. My friend sticks out a little right hand and bloodies my nose. And I go to the bathroom. I'm like, I thought it was cool. So I like rubbed the blood all over my face. Like I'm, now I'm a real boxer. And I went back in and we resumed the fight. And he was terrified because I had blood all over my face. Um, so I, I don't know. I was like, I was like an athlete, scholar athlete in high school and college. I played tennis. I played soccer. I was on the fencing team. I was always luckily kind of, you know, I'm not bragging, somewhat naturally muscular. Um, not, you know, not like a huge guy, but just life. And maybe I was proud of my body. Um, and so I was just sort of drawn to like the fantasy of boxing. And like I said, though, when I discovered like, you know, and later as an adult, like, oh, wait, you know, I mean, it was kind of cool when you're moving with somebody in the ring and maybe you land a few good body shots. But I remember when I hit Craig Davidson in the face and the head <clears throat> pretty hard in that fight in 2007, I saw this like real excruciating look of pain cross his eyes and I didn't feel good about it. Like, though, I did like the chess match part of fighting where you're moving around a ring, covering up. May, you know, the body shots, but, you know, really damaging somebody was not for me. Um, but so anyway, I guess I guess it was like performance, heroism, um, you know, just I, I guess I've had a pretty soft life in a lot of ways. So this thing of, you know, some people climb mountains or jump out of airplanes. So at one time in my life, testing my limits as a young man, I got into the ring. Well, where, I'd love to know about growing up. Like, what did your parents do? Where, where did you grow up? Uh, I grew up in northern New Jersey, about uh, 30, 40 minutes from the city. My parents were from Brooklyn, and they had left Brooklyn in 1960, uh, though my grandparents were still in Brooklyn. So, I was, And, yeah, we were just outside the city from, like, I was in this little mountain range uh, called the Rampo Mountains, and you could see New York from where I lived. And, um, and yes, yeah, so I grew up in northern New Jersey, a little town called Oakland. Oh, where uh, the boxer Scott Frank was from, who, who fought uh, Larry Holmes in the, I think, early 80s. Used to see him uh, jogging around town. And, uh, my, you know, my mother, I think, had him in a class. You know, he was a tough kid. Um, and... Uh, yeah, one time when I was like 17 or 18, I went to um, uh, a, a bar with a fake ID. And I think uh, that fighter, um, was it Bobby Chiz? Chiz, yeah. Yeah, I think he was there. And I think I, I got, got to talk to him. Did he unfortunately kill somebody in the ring? Something tragic happened with him? No, Bobby Chiz's claim to fame is he would wear a towel that would... would claim that he was a member of Menza, but he was then, I guess, the smartest person ever to repeatedly get DUIs, because I think he had five or six DUIs before the end of his career. 
Yeah, well, it's interesting because I met him in a <laughs> met him in a bar. I think, <laughs> I, I think it was Bobby Chiz. Somehow, I'm blending in my memory with Ray Mancini, but I don't think it was Ray Mancini. I think it was Bobby Chiz. Chiz had like a mustache. He's in the New Jersey. I think the Polish boxing, the Polish, the New Jersey Polish Boxing Hall of Fame. Well, that would make sense. He's from New Jersey, then. My, you know, I'm. It's my memory's unclear. This would have been like 1981 or 82. Yeah. What did your parents do? Oh, uh, my mom was a school teacher, and uh, my father was a traveling salesman for textile chemicals. And then, okay, so you get from high school. You go to Princeton. Um, where where were you thinking you were going to go? Did you know you always wanted to be a writer in in some form? I mean, you've done lots of TV stuff, film. Yeah, um, um, yeah. Well, in high school, my initial fantasy for my life was to be a tennis pro. Like I, I thought, like being a tennis pro at a tennis club would be the greatest job because there was this local tennis club where I um, mowed the lawns. It was like an indoor club. There was like a lawn outside. I would mow the lawns. I would vacuum the courts. I would go there like six or six thirty in the morning before school. I think it was my junior year and clean the courts and all that. I did that for a year or two, worked at that place. And I, I so looked up to like the pro, he had a Corvette and he just seemed like the coolest guy. And he wore like the same sweatsuit as Bjorn Borg. And um, so I, I thought I wanted to be a tennis pro. I thought that's the best life. You give lessons, you have a cool car. But then, I don't know, then I started I, sophomore year in high school. This uh, English teacher took an interest in me and thought I was a good writer. And I was on the soccer team. And then I turned my ankle and she said, you know, I still had to travel with the team. She said, there's a local newspaper that you could write about the team for, the Wyckoff News. So I started writing these little sports articles about the JV soccer team, making them very dramatic, you know, talking about the wind and the clouds and probably, you know, completely uh, exaggerating things. So she got me into writing, and then I began reading interesting writers in high school. It started with Kurt Vonnegut. I'm like, oh, this is, you can say different things. So by by the end of high school, I knew I wanted to be a writer. Um, and in fact, my that same English teacher wrote to me in my yearbook, I expect a signed copy of your first novel someday. And I got and I got into Princeton because I was a, a standout fencer. Um, I was one of the top fencers in the state of New Jersey. And I uh, was, you know, number one or number two, you know, I actually choked in the state finals and ended up third, but I had won every other tournament. It was really frustrating, but then I choked in this final season ending tournament. But I had like a 30 and 0 record. I was really put a lot into fencing. Um, and so that got me into Princeton. I wouldn't have gotten in just on grades and all that, but you know, they and the fencing coach had seen me at a tournament. So I got into Princeton and my mother had said, there's a writer there, Joyce Carol Oates and maybe you'll be able to work with her and i had you know not heard of her and and so right i think early on i had this fantasy because then i learned you could write a novel as your senior thesis everyone had to write a thesis at princeton and so sure enough i i didn't i got rejected the first semester 
uh, of getting into um, uh, her her class, but I got in the second semester, and then she very much became a mentor. And of course, she's a big fan of boxing, and I would go to her office, and there was like a picture of Mike Tyson on the wall, and I loved her book on boxing. Yeah. And uh, many years later, I was at some dinner of like alumni and. Joyce was there and I said, Joyce, I had a boxing match and, you know, I thought she'd be, you know, proud of me. And she said, oh, you shouldn't do that. You shouldn't get hit in the head. And I was like, oh my God, you're right. And oh no, so I don't feel like my memory, I used to have like a, just remember everything, but that might just be age and time and psychosomatic. Um, anyway, so yeah, so I, and then sure enough, I went to Princeton, worked with Joyce and as my thesis, I wrote uh, a novella. And, um, and then this uh, older gentleman in town who sort of became a friend had seen me in a play. He asked if he could read my novella, and I gave it to him, and he sent it to a literary agent without asking me. Huh. Just to get her opinion. And then sure enough, she said, I could sell it for you. So by the end of my senior year, she amazingly sold this little short novella um for you know just a few thousand dollars um uh, which was still a lot for a high school you know college graduate i think i got eight thousand dollars you know four thousand up front um sorry there's dings i don't know how to if i turn off the sound but anyway um so yeah so i but then i i struggled to expand that novel into a full novel it took me about a year and a half but then sure enough that first novel came out in 1989 i was 25 <clears throat> and uh, and I sent a copy to that English teacher, you know, signed. Like, here's that, uh, here's that novel you wanted to sign just seven years later. I mean, it's uh -huh. incredible. But no, no F. Scott Fitzgerald Princeton novel. Um, well, my novel, <clears throat> The Extra Man, uh, starts in Princeton. Okay. Uh, okay. The, the, the character lives there. And then moves to New York. And so there was some writing about the campus in that novel, even though that character didn't actually go to that school. He just happened to be living in town because he was uh, teaching at a prep school in the Princeton area. Um, but yeah, no, no ex extended this side of paradise novel. You am I wrong here? Wasn't there a guy, the New Yorker had a character of a runner, like a really, really good runner who who got into Princeton pretending to be an orphan who was like a goat herder or something? Yeah. He well, like bullsh bullshitted his way into Princeton around that time? Yeah, I think he may have been there when I was there or right after. I know who you're talking about. James Hogue, <laughs> that's his name. Yeah, yeah, he was... I think he was in his late 20s, <clears throat> but he was very youthful looking. He had been a, like, he was a good long distance runner or something. Yeah. Somehow, com and he was probably very bright, though, uh, unfortunately, sociopathic on some level. Um, and uh, somehow falsified an application to Princeton, got in. I don't know how long he was there, a year or two, or maybe less. At some point, it was discovered that it was fraudulent. Um, and he wasn't who he said he was. Right. And, uh, and I wonder what's become of him. 
I don't there's a good there's a good little documentary called The Runner. I mean the article in the New Yorker was good too. I think David Samuels wrote it mm. and then expanded into a book, but there was nothing in the book. Like the article was great, mm. but there was no real reason to expand it into the book because mm. he didn't really have anything additional. But huh, that's it just made me think of it. So what is it like? I mean, 25 selling a novella is something because I mean if you're not J.D. Salinger, I don't know who can sell a novella as a, as a book, let alone a first book without a big name. But um, where did you see your career going at that point? Was, were you excited? Were you daunted? Like, what, what was your life like at that point? Well, first of all, yeah, so I sold it at 23. It was probably 80 pages long, and I was contracted to double it in size so that it would go from like a novella to basically a short novel. And when I first sold it, I did, I really uh, struggled for about a year, six months or so to write. Suddenly the pressure was like, oh my God, I'm going to be published. And what had just been an organic experience writing to please Joyce Carol Oates, because I didn't know that I'd suddenly have a chance to be a writer right off the bat like that. I had applied to go teach English in Thailand, but then I sold the book. Anyway, so I struggled to expand the book, but then I did. Um, I, I turned things around. I, I, was, I moved back to Princeton. Uh, you know, really didn't have much money, but I was working at a bookstore um, later. And anyway, so um, I somehow finished the book. It comes out. In 1989, you know, much different time, you know, pre-internet. I didn't, I think I gave one little reading. <laughs> I think there was one review of the novel in the Village Voice. But um, but still, I'd published this novel, and it came out in a few foreign languages, France and Italy. I, I think published it and came out in England. And, uh, and people liked the book, which was great. And Philip Roth gave a quote for it, and Joyce Carol Oates, and, and, but then I suddenly had consciousness of, oh, when you put something out in the world, you get a response. And, and I really struggled to write a second novel. So then I went nine years between my first book and my second book. Um, and, you know, a lot of people have that second novelitis, they call it. And it was uh, and I there were many times during those nine years, where I'm like, I'm not going to make it. And I, at a certain point. Uh, my second novel, The Extra Man, had been rejected by about 20 publishers. And this uh, very nice woman I knew at the time, she told me this kind of Zen Buddhist thing. She said, anything you hold on to will cause you pain. And I thought, I'm holding on to this dream of being a writer. I have to, maybe I have to let it go. Because you know, it seemed like I had exhausted every publishing house in New York. And Turned out there was one publisher left that hadn't read the book and had been on this editor's desk. We thought, my agent and I thought she had rejected it. But then suddenly, six months after it was submitted, she contacted my agent. She'd finally read it and wanted it, which was great. So this was like 1997 at this point. Anyway, um, I, uh, I, you know, I just always... But, you know, those nine years between the first and second book were, you know, it was a different, you know, it was very, I drove a taxi for two and a half years. Then I went back to graduate school, you know, hoping to get a degree so that I could teach writing. You know, it was a long period of struggle, but eventually I got that degree. And for many years, well, about 12, 13 years, 
I supported myself teaching writing classes at night to adults. Then I started getting some adjunct work. Anyway, I just always, uh, I stuck with it to, you know, find a way to pay the rent as a writer and uh, just stuck to it. It was really the only thing I could do anyway. So I didn't have any other skills or talents. Uh, what was your Travis Bickle-like phase behind the wheel of a taxi Taxi in early 90s New York? I mean, that's... Well, that's it was actually... It was in New Jersey, so it's not as quite Sorry. hardcore. <laughs> okay. Um, but it was in, uh, in Princeton because I was living in town, had published that novel, you know, and then couldn't really get a normal job because I was like this novelist. I tried to get a job at the Princeton Library. So it was a very humbling thing in a way because here I'd gone to the school and now the taxi stand in Princeton was right outside the gates of the university. And this was before cell phones. And so we would line up at this taxi stand and wait for people to walk up. Or there was this one phone that we shared that was kind of like a pay phone, but not. It was a special taxi phone, like the bat phone. And that was in the yellow pages. And whoever was first in line could answer that call. Or if someone walked up first in line, then you'd move, you know. So I'd be sitting there with the other drivers. And some of my old teachers would walk by. And sometimes I'd pick up former classmates at the you know, train station, you know, if they were in town for a football game. But, um, but I loved the taxi driving because... You know, I, there was a lot of time sitting on the stand. I would read like three or four different newspapers. I, I read I read a lot of great literature. And I read, you know, The Magic Mountain, Anna Karenina sitting in that cab. And at the end of the day, you always had cash in your pocket. You know, things were, it was cash then. It wasn't really, people didn't use credit cards, uh, at least in that town, for taxis. And uh, so I always had, you know, I could feed myself. You know, maybe I made 40 bucks in a day, 50 bucks, 50 bucks was a good day, uh, 60 bucks. And you, I'd work from like 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. And then someone else would take the cab over. Sometimes I drove at night. Um, but, you know, I liked it. Also, every day was different. You never knew who'd get in your cab. I used to drive this priest from the seminary for, you know, half a year, a real smoker. But. I remember we would talk about God and beautiful things. And one time I had an opera singer. I took her to the Trenton train station and she sang a little something for me in the back of the cab. Uh, there were a few kind of, you know, drunken things. Oh, there was this interesting guy in town. He was, uh, he was uh, very disabled. He had been hit by like a truck or something when he was a kid. And, you know, but he, he was in town, like he would sweep in front of all the different businesses and he would walk all over town. He had a terrible limp from this horrific accident as a child. And, you know, a lot of times I would pick him up for free. You know, he'd flag me down. But once a month, he'd get some kind of disability check and he would take a bus to Atlantic City. I think he was like maybe half decent at like poker or blackjack or something. And he might start really doing well. So rather than take the bus to Atlantic City, like every few months he might get on a roll and none of the other drivers would take him. But I would drive him to Atlantic City, um, you know, for a flat fee. And I would actually make as much as I would if I just sat on the stand the whole day. And uh, so I would drive him to Atlantic City. And I don't know there were different adventures. At one time, some kids ripped me off. I drove them all the way to Pennsylvania and then they bolted out of the car and <laughs> I had to go to the police station and 
all sorts of stuff went down. Um, anyway, but yeah, that was, I did that from like 90 to 92. And then I, and then I moved to New York to go to graduate school. Cause I'm like, Oh my, all right, I got it. I, you know, I got to do something. I can't drive a taxi forever. What was New York like at that time for you? Uh, New York, um, oh, well, New York was amazing. It, you know, it was, uh, pre Giuliani. So it was still, it was still a rough element to New York. I spent a lot of time in old Times square. That's when I started going to the Kingsway boxing gym. Um, I lived up on 96th street between third and second in a tiny little room with an eccentric man. I had like a sliver of a room. I found the cheapest room in the village voice. It was like 200 a month. I, I had a little room with a cot right next to the toilet. And, uh, but he was a great eccentric and he became very much a role model for my novel, The Extra Man, which then later got made into a movie starring Kevin Kline, um, and Paul Dano. And, um, so yeah, just, and I would take the bus from the east side over to the west side and go to my classes at Columbia. And then, uh, and then through Columbia, I got some job working at a magazine you know, making calls to museums to try to get them to carry the magazine. It was an environmental journal. And, and then I worked the door at the old Fez nightclub. I got a job doing that. And I started performing there. Uh, yeah, I mean, it was New York. New York was a lot tougher. I remember I had a friend who lived on Avenue B. And, you know, you'd go running across avenue a and it would just be getting more and more dangerous and i'd cross avenue b and i'd be ringing his bell looking to the left and right you know because he would he got mugged a lot i I was lucky i never got mugged in new york i was always uh wary but back then you really could get mugged um because i i remember like i <clears throat> one of my first apartments in new york was 110th and second second avenue hmm. and i think that's the second highest concentration of low-income housing in in North America, like other than Brownsville. Mm. And there were still drive-by shootings and stuff like that when I was there. So mm. I can only imagine when you were there, it was probably a much more rough place. Yeah, well, New York was rough but glorious. And, um, you know, I, I, you know, what's the old ad? I love New York or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> Is it, was it I love New York or we love New York or, or? I know the one you're referencing, but I don't remember it. My mind is going also. I don't know. It must be going around. It's the cell phones. <laughs> well, so, I mean, I was reading this profile about you in the New York Times, I guess from about 2010. And one of the things that's interesting about it is this guy that you're describing where you don't know, you don't know if you're going to be able to write your own ticket career-wise with writing and stuff. But... It it in 2010 is pointing out that you're one of the like the the kids from the neighborhood who made it when you were in Brooklyn at that time. Mm. Um, so I just I just wondered like when did you feel like you had kind of fulfilled the promise that that in your own mind like you, you were trying to create for yourself? Um, you know I don't know that I've ever felt like I've fulfilled my promise um, or you know. I don't know if anybody does. You know, we also struggle with um, either 
not everyone, but, you know, feeling whether it be fraudulent or ashamed of ourselves, these are lifelong issues you have to work through. Um, but, and, you know, and I, it wasn't until I guess I was like 2009, yeah, when I was 45, that I finally really began to uh, get an income from writing. I mean, I, I had, you know, from not, uh, nine, yeah, I guess it was 20 years, from 1989 to 2009, I was publishing books, I had a column in a free newspaper, but really, it was teaching that kept me afloat, but I never, you know, I never, I was only, maybe always one or two months ahead of my rent, <clears throat> and sometimes not, but it's somehow I always managed to pay my rent, thankfully. Uh, but then in, you know, 2009, through a lot of luck and good circumstances, I landed TV show, you know, and it had been, been 20 years of hustling and performing and just trying everything, you know. Um, and so now then, now that's 12 years later, and I've had definitely a lot of worldly success. Um, and um, I... But I still feel like, I don't know, like a, a newcomer or a, a young writer. The, you know, there's body image distortion and then there's age image distortion. And, but um, but I, I just feel very fortunate. You know, I've saved money. Um, I bought a little house here in my 50s. And, um, and I'm just, you know, I've got a new book coming out. You know, it's like I just keep wanting to make things um, and I keep loving books and reading books. And so I've definitely I've had an amazing run. Um, but, you know, uh, but do I feel like I've made it or, you know, I don't know if anyone ever feels like they made it. I mean, did Hemingway feel like he made it? Sadly, I mean, he might have from that accident he had maybe did something to his brain and he killed himself at the end of his life. I mean, it's a nightmare. You know, he was considered the greatest writer, you know, or he, whether it was through self-promotion or acclaim. But so, you know, what is the cliche? Uh, the journey is the destination. You know, so I don't, uh, but I'm, I'm just very pleased to be able to write and make a living and, um, so I've had a, a good run. Um, you know, I'm like a boxer, you know, like a guy who's like had 50 fights or something, you know, he's 50 and seven or so, you know, I mean, when those guys have that many fights, I'm like, oh my God, so many fights it took so much, you know, but they had to train so much. They went through so much, but I'm sort of having a kind of long career, um, you know, books and TV shows and some movies. I mean, it's been an incredible run. Well, if you, if you were around in say Hemingway's time, I mean, Fitzgerald, even in the 1930s was making like $4,000 back then before you adjust for inflation. I mean, that must be like $40,000 or something for a short story. Do mm -hmm. you think that you would have like when uh, books, short stories and that kind of thing had a kind of primacy, primacy in the culture would you have moved to television if you could have lived off of just doing books and stories and essays and that kind of thing? Well, I, I mean, you know, very few writers can just live off of their books. Like, you sure. know, I mean, 
the, in America, most writers are teaching. You know, you have a few, you know, the bestsellers, and they kind of support the rest of the publishing industries. <laughs> like, you know, um, but I mean, look, Fitzgerald, I mean, what a beautiful writer. But by the mid 30s, all his books were out of print. It was just insane, really. I mean, I think, you know, he was selling some of those short stories, but I think by the mid to late 30s, he was out of print. He was trying to write for Hollywood. And then he was dead, you know, by 44, I think, in early 40s. You know, just very tragic. And um, and now, you know, he's still part of the canon and The Great Gatsby is considered one of the great American novels. And um, But I don't know what I would have been doing. I don't, I feel like, oh gosh, I never would have made it back then. You know, I'm not, like, those guys were so good. I wouldn't. I don't know what I would have been doing. Um, Do you ever wish you were writing in a different time? I, I haven't thought about that per se. I mean, sometimes I used to fantasize about living in a different time. When, uh, when would you like to have lived? Well, I think the fantasies were is interesting. You bring up Fitzgerald and Hemingway, maybe because I read those guys in college, and you know, and may and interestingly, you know, the twenties followed a pandemic, followed a world war and great upheaval. So maybe the 20s always seemed like this beautiful time. You took ships to Europe. You know, the food hadn't been completely destroyed yet. You know, food was still, everything was organic. You know, the environmental damages, you know, I'm sure, well, they began in the 19th century with, you know, the Industrial Revolution. But, um, but certainly man knew of the horrors that they could perpetrate on each other and society was completely a mess. But uh, anyway, I, I don't know. It's always, I think it's always fun to imagine what cities or would have looked like in a different time, you know, and, and certainly old Los Angeles. I might've liked to have been here before when it was mostly just dirt roads and then Houses built in these crazy hills where I live now. Um, anyway, but well, uh, well, I mean, apropos of your your book, I mean, immediately, just like reading reading the back of the book and and some of the reviews for it, I, I thought like, how much did Ask the Dusk or Long Goodbye or Inherit Vice or Chinatown kind of influence this character? Because you didn't mention as one of your side jobs a private detective, but it seems like you would have thrived as having that as a side job. I know Errol Morris, the filmmaker, that was a job he had before he could make a living. Oh, really? Oh. oh, that makes sense. You know, he's an investigator. Right. Um, I don't know if I would have been a good private detective. I mean, certainly now I wouldn't be a good one because it feels like you got to be really clever with the computer and all this stuff. Um, but I, yeah, I like being a boxer. I always, I think I had a major fantasy about being a private detective. I you know, had a whole TV show about that, Bored to Death, which was about that fantasy of being a private detective. And now, uh, you know, I read all those books you mentioned. I think my influences for this one more have to do with the writing style by this writer named Richard Stark, uh, who wrote um, these all these novels about this character, Parker. And Richard Stark was a pseudonym for Donald Westlake. And, and then I had other influences. Well, and Lee Child, you know, uh, current 
you know, bestseller, amazing writer. Um, so I don't know. I just was working within the deep genre of trying to write detective novels with this new book, A Man Named Dahl. Um, and writing in this new home of mine, Los Angeles. And it's kind of a, it's sort of like the Moby Dick of writing to write about a Los Angeles private detective because of what Raymond Chandler did with, you know, <laughs> all his books about Philip Marlowe. Um, and, and there's been many, you know, but it's, um, I don't know, I've just been drawn to pulp fiction. And so my fantasy for my life at this time is to be a guy who can write a, a book a year in a series. Like, cause I see this, a man named Dahl as the beginning of a series. Um, so the same way that Chandler had his, you know, Philip Marlowe and Ross McDonald had Lou Archer and, you know, these great writers who, you know, create a singular character that they follow all the time. That's what I'm trying to do. Well, and interesting also that you have a Thai spa where your, your protagonist operates as security. And mm. just with the headlines that we have right now with the shooting in, in Georgia, um, I always wondered why there was why that wasn't utilized as a location more in a noir story, because like, these spas are so operate such a like I, I think I read a, a thing in Bloomberg or the New York Times saying like it, it runs into the billions of dollars that the sex operations in these places in just like New York, like how successful they are and, and basically like sex slaves who work in them. Oh gosh, yeah. Um yeah, well, I mean, I don't know, like I guess I'm not, you know, you don't even remember why you write things or what the inspiration was. But I mean, all around this neighborhood in L.A., you see a lot of these spas. And for some reason, I thought, you know, this guy who's a private detective. He's kind of down and out. He used to be a cop, but he's really struggling to make a living that I just had in my mind that these places you would need um, security. Like that, you know, stuff could go down there without really even, I don't know. I just saw them and I just was like, I bet they need security in there because, you, you know, and so I imagine this guy working security in a spa to protect the young women from unruly jerks and, um, and had no idea, sadly, that this horrible tragedy, of course, would occur. I mean, I wrote this book two years ago now. You know, everything takes a while to come out. And um, so, yeah, it was. And then in my other novel, You Were Never Really Here, I, again, I came up with this character who, you know, exfiltrates children being taken into the sex trade because I wanted to create a hero. And some people thought maybe a little bit my plot was contrived because it had to do with like politicians and very wealthy men. But then, and I'm, I don't know if I was so aware of Jeffrey Epstein, but then it was like, my book was almost mild compared to all the stuff going on with that whole nightmare. So there's, there's so much, uh, darkness in the world. And, I do, you know, even if I'm writing about some of these dark things, though, I always want to try to have a message of compassion and humanity. 
And uh, when I write these things, because I enjoy reading them, I do want my characters to be heroic, to want to try to fight for the vulnerable. Sure. Yeah, no, it, it, I don't know. It, it, it just kind of, it was interesting to find your book. I mean, your publisher sent it a, a few days ago. Just, uh, I thought it was pretty brave of you artistically to not go back in time with Los Angeles, with noir, but to do it contemporary. Mm. Um, that just would seem like a big challenge to do, and I think you really pulled it off. I'm only halfway through, but I'm really enjoying it. Oh, thank you. Um, do you do you see it? I mean, it seems kind of a natural for it to be picked up for a movie, and you want to do more of them. It, was that kind of an aim for you? Was was creatively being involved with this coming to the screen? Um, well, the goal was first of all to create a series and you have the galley but in the uh fi finished book which comes out in a, you know april 20th um the first chapter of the next book in the series will be at the end of the book uh which is cool and um there is a movie thing happening i'm not supposed to really talk about it yet because maybe everyone's deal isn't done but i also i had discovered with my novel you were never really here that a short novel does translate well into film. Uh, long novels, you know, so much you got to cut out or, and then something goes missing. But I discovered with my novel, You Were Never Really Here, that it translated very nicely into film. And, um, and that short pieces of fiction can translate well into film, which is why uh, Francis Ford Coppola had started this literary magazine. I'm, I'm not sure if it's still out there called Zoetrope, because I think I remember in the 90s, I attended some talk he gave about this magazine that, you know, short fiction you could make into films. Anyway, um, so, but mostly I'm into the prose of it all, but very happy for there to be a movie. And I, I have written the script for the movie. You know, of course, you never know if it's going to get made and all that with movies. So that's why it's... Uh, I, you know, like to write books because, you know, you, you can give them to people and entertain people and help them maybe feel less alone with your books. And if you just write a screenplay on spec, it may or may not ever get made. Um, so it's good to start with the book. Um, My last question is, I'm, I'm coming out there in a couple of weeks and I'm just wondering, how is L.A. right now? I haven't been there in a couple of years. Mm. How is like how is it with Corona and and I don't know what part of LA you're in. Well, I'm in Hollywood, uh, literally and metaphorically. Um, you know, I guess it's opening up. I've been very orthodox about all this. I've kind of just stayed home. You know, the one place I go is the bookstore that's been open um, for a while and the supermarket. But I, I, you know, outdoor dining is happening again. Um, and um but you know it's beautiful here you it's a great time of year to come because it's like the spring and every you just the, the smell of jasmine is in the air constantly i should be there the first week of april so i'll just send you a text and if it works that'd be great okay man. well All thank right. you for you know wanting to do this and you know persevering with me <laughs> no my pleasure thank you it was a lot of fun thank you talk to you soon
All right. Bye. Bye bye. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Tourist Information. The producers for this show are George Alarcon Swaby and myself, Bryn Jonathan Butler. Thanks for listening. <laughs>